You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. I have often questioned as to the objects of my tour, and I am willing to gratify a reasonable and friendly curiosity. My views were various. Besides the ordinary advantages of travel, and of becoming acquainted with a country comparatively but little known, I wished to acquire the simplicity, native feelings, and virtues of savage life. To divest myself of the fractious habits, prejudices, and imperfections of civilization. To become a citizen of the world and to find, amidst the solitude and grandeur of the western wilds, more correct views of human nature and of the true interests of man. The season of snows was preferred, that I might experience the pleasure of suffering and the novelty of danger. Estwick Evans, 1819 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies, and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories true stories of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 25, The Man in the Buffalo Fur Suit. Maybe I'm showing my age here, but I'm going to ask the listeners of this show who might have grown up in the 1970s or 80s, as I did, whether they remember a television show, and earlier a movie, called The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. I certainly remember it. It was one of those kid-friendly shows that aired on a weeknight and turned up again for decades on UHF television on Saturday afternoons. It had a historical bent, definitely set in the 19th century frontier, as was another popular show aimed at children that was airing at the same time, Little House on the Prairie. The Grizzly Adams show premiered in 1977, but was a spin-off of a 1974 movie, also called The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, released by the fascinating and unusual film studio Sun Classic Pictures, famous, or should we say infamous, for other movies like The Lincoln Conspiracy, and In Search of Historic Jesus. I'll say a word about Sun Classic Pictures in a few minutes. I remember very little of the specifics of the Grizzly Adams show, except it was about a mountain man and a bear he loved, named Ben, named after Ben Franklin, of course. The main point of the show was about a man who learned to live in the harsh wilderness of the West with the help of his animal friends. In fact, the tagline of the film on the movie poster reads, the true story of a man exiled in the wilderness and how he learns to survive. 
The tagline in this case doubles as a plot summary, I guess. I haven't seen the film in 40 years. The Grizzly Adams movie and shows were based on a real figure who really was known as Grizzly Adams. His real name was James Adams, or John Adams, yes, like the president, but no relation. He was born in the second decade, 1812, and was active in California during the 1850s, dying just before the outbreak of the Civil War. But the real Grizzly Adams was far from the first mountain man that captured the imagination of America in the 19th century. Indeed, the rugged, bearded loner, hiking long distances and living by himself in the frigid wilderness, has a long tradition in American history and folklore, and it's closely linked to the frontier identity that Americans were forging in that century. Grizzly Adams was probably the most famous of these mountain men, at least among the later ones. Daniel Boone, who was blazing trails in the Kentucky wilderness in the 1780s, was probably the most well-known of the early ones. And then there was Estwick Evans. He was the quintessential mountain man of the second decade, but if you've never heard of him, I'm not surprised. Oh, he did all the stuff that mountain men are supposed to do. Live off the land, befriend and occasionally kill wild animals, tramp through snowstorms, and other hazards of the frontier. But Estwick Evans was a little... odd. Not just because he ran around in a skin-tight bodysuit made of buffalo fur, although that was odd, and smelly, but Estwick Evans was just... odd. First of all, he didn't do his mountain man thing in Kentucky, or the far west. He was from New Hampshire, for starters, the sort of place with church steeples and white picket fences like we talked about in the last episode. Also, unlike John Grizzly Adams, Evans was, of all things, a lawyer. Not exactly the kind of guy you'd expect to see blazing trails through the wilderness in the dead of winter. But that's exactly what Estwick Evans did. In 1818, in winter, wearing his buffalo suit, Evans hiked from New Hampshire across much of what was then the United States, crossing into what was called the Old Northwest, meaning the Northwest Territory, on a 4,000-mile journey from New England to Detroit, then a, rug- then a rugged settlement on the frontier, and eventually to New Orleans, around Florida, and back up the eastern seaboard. What's more, he wrote a book about this journey, and it's one of the most interesting books to come out of the second decade. This episode is based on his book, which has the title, A Pedestrious Tour of 4,000 Miles Through the Western States and Territories During the Winter and Spring of 1818. That's the full title. Although his story was never turned into a movie or a TV series, and he was accompanied by two dogs rather than a lovable bear, I'd put Estwick Evans up against Grizzly Adams any day. So join me now for the story of the oddest mountain man you'll ever encounter, Estwick Evans. The Man in the Buffalo Fur Suit Good evening. Before we get into the tale of Estwick Evans, there are a few announcements and housekeeping matters I'd like to mention. First, I'm guest hosting another podcast on the New Books Network, in the category of environmental studies. On that channel, I'll be speaking to authors of recent environmental history books, and it's really going to be fascinating. My first interview will be with John Ryan Fisher, author of Cattle Colonialism, which is an environmental history of the linkages between California and Hawaii in the 19th century, including the second decade. In fact, Dr. Fisher's book even touches on some subjects I talked about way back in episode 4 of this podcast, about Hawaii in the second decade. So if you like that show, 
tune into this one. Go to newbooksnetwork.com, click the science and tech bar, and then Enviro Studies. I don't know exactly when that interview will be posted, but it's coming soon. Second, big, big announcement. There's going to be a second decade book. I've been working on compiling and revising some of my first season scripts into a fun, popular history book with some highlights of the decade, all properly sourced. If you've enjoyed the show, I know you're going to love the book. Not a dry-as-dust academic history, not a heavy tome with thousands of footnotes, but the same fun and folksy history, the same conversational style you get from me on this show, revised, expanded a little. More details soon on when and where that book will be available. I'll also be sure news of it is posted on the Second Decade website, my personal website, seanmunger.com, and my Patreon. Third, starting with this episode, I'm going to do a couple of times a season a bonus episode in the category we would loosely call Second Decade Off Topic. I know a lot of history besides what happened in the 18-teens, and sometimes I feel a little constrained by the chronological format of this show, So a bonus episode now and again, not specifically about the 18-teens, but perhaps connected to things we talk about on the show proper, I thought that might be fun. This is going to be kind of a free form, a bit less scripted and formal than Second Decade proper. The first off-topic bonus episode will drop contemporaneously with this episode, and it's kind of a tangent off of this one. You heard me mention The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, the 1974 movie and the 1977 TV show that spun off of it. I compared Estwick Evans to sort of a second decade version of Grizzly Adams. That film was released by a very interesting movie studio called Sun Classic Pictures, which is definitely worth a little historical discussion. Sun Classic was a film studio that had a couple of hits in the 1970s, focusing on pseudo-historical narratives a movie about a shadowy and completely false conspiracy theory to assassinate Abraham Lincoln being one of them. Sun Classic is linked kind of indirectly to the politics and social change that was going on in the late 70s, and I think it's an interesting subject. So that's the topic of this first bonus episode, second decade off-topic, the title The Sun, Two Ends, The Sun Also Rises. Just an experiment. If it goes well, I might do a few more off-topic bonus episodes, again, not centering around the 18-teens. So now, let's get back on topic. Who the hell was Estwick Evans, and why did he go around the wilderness wearing a suit of buffalo fur? And what was he trying to do? Estwick Evans was, above all else, eccentric. His memoirs, A Pedestrious Tour, please don't make me read the whole title again, His memoirs are almost like a second-decade version of Jack Kerouac's On the Road, except set in the wilderness of the Old Northwest, with buffalo fur. There were no beatniks in the 18-teens, but as was made clear by the quote from the beginning of this episode, Evans was trying to find himself out there in the wilderness, a sentiment we find from other 19th-century personages, like Henry David Thoreau and John Muir. But instead of reflecting simply on the glories of nature or the peace he found in his own soul, Estwick Evans commented on just about everything else. Politics, women, climate change, slavery, all the stuff he thought about while wandering up there in the trees in the dead of winter. The book is almost a stream-of-consciousness narrative of the contents of his head, which is why I compared it to On the Road. That Evans had a high of opinion of himself almost goes without saying. But insufferable as he is, he's also kind of endearing, in a strange sort of way. Estwick Evans was from a prominent and interesting family. 
He was born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in 1787. His older brother Richard, born in 1777, became a merchant and eventually began to study law. This appears to be a track that Estwick followed as well. The Evans brothers, however, did not have any formal training in law. Their informal training appears to have been pretty sketchy, too. There were no law schools in America at this time. The way you became a lawyer was the same way you became a tailor or a furniture maker. You apprenticed with an older person in the same business, learned the trade by doing, and eventually you'd know enough to hang a shingle of your own. The apprenticeship of a would-be lawyer to an established one was called reading the law, but it wasn't really comparable to today's law schools. In any event, both the Evans brothers were ultimately admitted to practice law by the courts of New Hampshire. Estwick's admission to practice before the Court of Common Pleas in 1811, when he was 24, was apparently controversial. It had not been recommended by the Bar Association of New Hampshire, which protested his admission. If you wonder how it happened, consider this. Estwick's older brother Richard had been appointed to the New Hampshire Supreme Court in 1809, where he served for four years. Gee, you don't think there was nepotism involved, do you? Estwick practiced law in various towns in New Hampshire, starting in Portsmouth, and eventually Exeter. He seems to have been one of those lawyers who was attracted to championing the rights of the downtrodden. He represented a lot of poor people and sailors who had grievances against their employers, mostly over money. Another lawyer is quoted as saying of him that, quote, He had about as much influence as anyone, because he was a clever fellow, honest, poor, and not well treated, and people sympathize with him, end quote. The War of 1812 seems to have had a major effect on Evans's life. He talks about it a lot in his book, though not about his own experiences in it. He seems to have volunteered for military service, but doesn't appear to have actually served in the armed forces, for what reason isn't clear to me. In 1815, the end of the war, he was still practicing law back in Portsmouth. I was able to find very little on Evans's life between 1815 and the time that he started his pedestrious tour in the winter of 1818. One event that did happen in this period was that his brother Richard, former court justice, died in July 1816, aged only 39. Whether this had anything to do with Estwick wanting to find himself is anyone's guess. He did not marry until 1820 after his tour was over, so he didn't yet have a family. As to why he decided to take off across the country, I guess we have to take him at his word that he wanted to experience the simplicity, native feelings, and virtues of savage life. He doesn't say what preceded his trip, or even really how he prepared for it, but he seems to have made the buffalo suit before he left. Here's what he said about it. Quote, it may gratify some to know the particulars of my habiliment. Mine was a close dress consisting of buffalo skins. On my shoulders were epaulets made of the long hair of the animal, and they were for the purpose of shielding the shoulder from rain. Around my neck and under one arm was strapped a double leather case with brass chargers for shot and ball and under the other arm a case for powder strapped in the same way, and also having a brass charger. Around the waist was a belt with a brace of pistols, a dirk, two side cases for pistol balls, and a case for molds and screw. Also around the waist was buckled an Indian apron, which fell behind. It was about 18 inches square, covered with fine bear skin, trimmed with fur, and having over the lower part of it a net for game. This apron contained a pocket compass, maps, journals, shaving materials, a small hatchet, patent fireworks, and etc. My cap and gloves were made of fur, my moccasins were of deerskin, and on my shoulder I carried a six-feet rifle. End quote. Evans's book even contains a picture of himself in this memorable getup. 
the suit looks very tight. In this illustration, which I'll put on the website, Evans looks less like Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant, and more like a young Robert De Niro in skin-tight fur pajamas. Strangely, he doesn't have the long hair and unkempt beard you'd expect from a mountain man, but then again, he was a lawyer. Dressed in his unforgettable outfit, Estwick Evans tells us that he departed a friend's house in Hopkinson, New Hampshire, on February 2nd, 1818. His companions were two dogs named Tiger, that's spelled T-Y-G-E-R, and Pomp. He doesn't say what kind of dogs they were, though they were large and evidently suited for pursuing game. I'm thinking, I don't know, German Shepherds, Bull Mastiffs, something like that. Evans was slow to get started. He says he traveled only eight miles on the first day, and that his fatigue was extreme. In other words, he was out of shape, and it took him a while to get used to life in the wilderness. Soon, though, he was averaging 15 to 20 miles a day, headed generally west through forests, hills, and countryside, stopping at various towns along the way. Several New England towns make brief appearances in Evans' narrative, and from them you can reconstruct his journey. Starting in Hopkinton, he passed through Amherst, Massachusetts. Emily Dickinson wouldn't be born there for another 12 years. Her father, Edward, was only 15. Then he went through Milford, Marlborough, and into Connecticut, visiting Keene and Chesterfield. Then he passed into Vermont, which had previously been a part of New York State. Evans doesn't talk much about where he slept or how he lived. He seems to have slept out in the open at least part of the time, but he also speaks of staying at the cabins of emigrants, that's emigrants with an E, various poor people who lived in the backwoods. Indeed, Evans was almost obsessed with emigrants. Several times in his narrative, he launches into long diatribes about whether Americans should move from place to place, and why, and what they should do when they get there. Evans has a pretty distracting habit of digressing. But then again, the digression was one of the chief literary forms of memoirs in the second decade. We saw it, for example, in episode 5, which dealt with the memoirs of sea captain Charles H. Bernard. In the Green Mountains of Vermont, after Evans left Brattleboro, he encountered dangerous weather. It was very cold and high winds were blowing snow into huge drifts. Evans had stopped at a house in this area, but he didn't know how much farther the next one was. Plowing through the snow, it's getting dark, he ultimately spies what he describes as a comfortable hut, and barely manages to make it there before getting hypothermia. Taking off his buffalo skin hat, Evans finds his ears are frostbitten. For some reason, Evans thinks this is a great opportunity to spout off on his opinion of women. Though not exactly what we call a feminist today, Evans had at least some progressive views on gender equality, at least compared to most men of the second decade. He writes, quote, The influence of woman in civilized life has not yet reached its acme. The effects of her ancient condition are not entirely removed. Hereditary ignorance and oppression still partially obstruct her intellectual progress. She has, in times past, not only had to contend with an almost entire seclusion from the world, where alone theoretical and practical knowledge are blended for the improvement of the human mind, but the other sex, unconscious of moral force and influenced only by a sense of physical strength, have, in various parts of the globe, treated her as an inferior. O oh, wretched pride! O oh, disgraceful ignorance! O oh, vulgar barbarity! The dub of Paphos is oppressed by the Egyptian vulture! End quote. Now, who can argue with that? (music) 
After leaving Vermont, Estwick Evans crossed over into upstate New York. He visited Troy first and then Albany. It had been only a couple of days since he left New Hampshire. 1818 was an interesting time to visit this part of New York. The Erie Canal had just begun construction, having finally been approved and funded by the New York State Legislature to the tune of $7 million, an enormous sum in 1817. Construction started on July 7th of that year, near Rome, New York. There wasn't much of it complete by the time Estwick Evans tramped through in his tight buffalo costume. He does mention the Erie Canal, and even refers to DeWitt Clinton, who was instrumental in getting it built. But if he saw any portion of the construction on his tour, he didn't mention it. The canal was eventually opened in 1825, and validated Evans's prediction that it would prove to be a huge boom to the economy of New York and the United States. New York's state motto, the Empire State, has a lot to do with the Erie Canal. Evans seems to have run into some hecklers in the town of Pompeii, New York, which he reached on February 16th. He writes, quote, At Pompeii I was so beset by ignorant impertinence and loquacious curiosity that I found it necessary to harangue the multitude. Having laid down for them some salutary rules upon the subject of manners and taking their silence for an apology, I proceeded to Manlius, end quote. What, did they make fun of his buffalo suit? Indeed, the inhabitants of the towns Evans passed through didn't seem to know what to make of him. He wrote, I have observed that I was seldom known, and as I appeared to be a person traveling in disguise, some pains were taken to ascertain who I was. The suggestions respecting me were very numerous, and a great many bets were made, and many expedients resorted to in relation to my origin, destination, and business. Some imagined me to be upon a secret expedition for the government, my manners seldom comporting with my mode of living, the multitude were at a loss to know what class in society I belonged. They heard me converse like other people, but seldom saw me eat or drink, and were surprised to view me sleeping with my dogs upon the bare floor. End quote. It was dangerous to travel in the backcountry in 1818. Evans remarks that he was warned that robbers plied the western turnpike through New York State, highwaymen to use an archaic term, he was never robbed, but he does speak of stashing away money he had in various parts of his clothes. I guess the buffalo suit had hidden pockets or something. And he always kept the rifle at his side. The gun, as you recall, was six feet long. I don't think I'd want to try to rob a guy carrying a six-foot rifle. The inhabitants of the backwoods through which Evans trekked were an odd sort. As he passed near Ontario, New York, on his way to Niagara Falls, he encountered some people who apparently believed in witchcraft. Quote, in this part of the country, many of the people entertained strange notions respecting supernatural agencies. Solitude, while it strengthens the mind and fortifies the heart of the well-informed, renders the ignorant timid and superstitious. The whisper of their forests and the echo of their hills alarm their unenlightened imaginations. Those inhabitants of the West of whom I am now speaking believe in witchcraft and often suppose it the source of disease in man and beast. Whilst on the borders of Ontario, I stopped for a few moments at a log hut where there was a man in a convulsion fit. During the operation of the malady, my attention was attracted by the conversation of two young women upon the subject. One of them observed that if a garment of the man should be taken off and thrown into the fire, the fit would leave him and never return again. The other assented to the idea, but the prescription was not attended to. Perhaps they were afraid of being bewitched themselves. End quote. Evans also encountered Indians. Somewhere between Ontario and Niagara Falls, he happened to wander into a camp of Native Americans, whom he identified as Tonawandans. 
This was probably on the reservation of the Tonawanda Band of Seneca Indians in Genesee County. Evans' views on Native Americans were generally pretty progressive for the time as well. He didn't regard them as thieves or savages, and in his book he expresses considerable sympathy for the depredations visited upon them by white people. At the Tonawandan village, Evans describes witnessing a war dance, meeting the old chief of the people and his son, who was being groomed for leadership, and generally the customs and manners he observed among them. This kind of thing was very common in the second decade, in travelogues, a kind of ethnographic survey of distant lands and their exotic peoples. Today we would say this sort of reinforced a lot of negative stereotypes about Native Americans, but Evans' view was remarkably progressive for the 18-teens. In late February, Evans arrived at Fort Niagara. In this part of his narrative, he talks a lot about the War of 1812, in which several major battles occurred in this area. For instance, he visits Queenston Heights, which was the site of a major American defeat early in the war. We talked about that in episode 15. Even after the war, the frontier between the United States and British-held Canada was a tense and contested border. Fort Niagara and its personnel seemed keyed up and edgy. The wounds of the war clearly had not healed by this time. Strangely, Evans does not seem to have been too impressed with Niagara Falls. I confess that I was disappointed, he wrote, both with respect to the height of the falls and the quantity of water propelled over them in a given time. There is, however, in their eternal roar a nameless solitude. For ages this roar has been ceaseless, and it seems to speak of perpetual duration. From Niagara Falls, Evans proceeded to Buffalo, then the biggest commercial center on the American side of the Great Lakes, and then he started toward Detroit. The weather grew problematic. He writes, Early in March, I experienced a long storm of rain. My garments, after a while, became wet, which circumstance rendered my situation uncomfortable. Gee, you think? I traveled during the whole of the storm in the belief that the continual motion was necessary to preserve my health. No one can take cold in the worst of weather during an active arterial circulation. It is in a sudden check of this impetus that severe colds are experienced and diseases contracted. At a place called the Black Swamp on the Sandusky River, Evans was traveling through a forest when he encountered a pack of wolves. He was not in good shape at the time. Exhausted, wet, cold, and suffering from an excruciating toothache, Evans nonetheless grabbed his gun and tried to defend his dogs from the wolves. Unfortunately, they were both torn to shreds. Evans was so depressed by the loss of Tiger and Pomp that he camped on the spot where they died for two days, for what reason he says he does not know. But then, indulging his habit for digression, Evans at this point in his book launches into a lengthy discussion of the habits and biology of wolves. So in addition to being a backwoodsman, an expert on gender relations and Native American customs, Estwick Evans also fancies himself a zoologist. On March 20th, Evans finally reached Detroit. He quickly sent a letter to Lewis Cass, the governor of Michigan, reading, A gentleman from New Hampshire wishes for the privilege of introducing himself to Governor Cass. He is upon a pedestrian tour and therefore trusts that the roughness of his garb will not preclude him from the honor of an interview. March 20th, 1818. You could do this in the second decade. Just waltz into town and ask to see the governor or some other high official, even if they'd never heard of you. Probably Lewis Cass had heard of Estwick Evans. Um, governor, there's a strange man running around in the wilderness in a buffalo fur suit, and we think he's headed this way. Okay, I'm joking, but still. Cass did interview Evans. They met at the governor's house at 9 o'clock the next morning. 
Detroit was an important milestone on Evans' journey, because there he switched from going overland to water transportation. He's curiously circumspect about how he left Detroit and with whom. He just says he began sailing on a small vessel. His traveling companions he identifies only as General Macomb, evidently a friend of Governor Cass, Major M, Captain W, and Lieutenant B. Evans doesn't talk about these people very much. He clearly wants the focus to be on himself. From this point on, a pedestrian tour becomes more like a nautical tour of the inland rivers of North America. Not so very pedestrian, but more aquatic. Evans sails down the Detroit River with his army friends, and ultimately they wind up on several of the Great Lakes. This is an excuse for a long digression about America's naval history, especially in the War of 1812. Pittsburgh, the largest commercial center in western Pennsylvania, is next on Evans' list. Though passing through the city, he doesn't find it very attractive. Apparently the aesthetics of Pittsburgh were no better 200 years ago than they are today. But he does make a remarkable prediction. Quote, This place is celebrated for its manufactories and will become the Birmingham of America. Birmingham in England became noted later in the 19th century for its heavy industry in steel, and that's exactly what Pittsburgh did become once the Industrial Revolution got going. So for all of his eccentricities and digressions, Evans was prescient on a couple of scores. Here, Evans entered the Ohio River, which was the great artery of commerce into the American continent. By now, he seemed to have ditched his army friends and was hopping his way from one boat to the next. I always, when I wished to descend the rivers, Evans writes, jumped into the first boat I could find. Sometimes I moved along in a keel, sometimes in an ark, and sometimes rowed myself in a little skiff. By taking this course, I not only could land when I pleased, but became particularly acquainted with the navigation of the rivers and with the various means of transportation upon them. In this part of Evans' story, we see a foreshadowing of the riverboat era of the middle of the 19th century, long before there were the steamboat river queens, the kind of paddle-wheel gambling boats you see in the old Maverick TV series, for instance. Goods, mostly grain, livestock, and alcohol, were carried downriver on barges and flatboats. Evans describes pole boats going up the river, a very long and laborious process, but a man pushing a boat along by sticking a pole into the river bottom is about as good as it got in 1818 without a steam engine. The boats that plied the river, especially the makeshift barges, were basically single-use only. A farmer or merchant would transport his crops or merchandise down the Ohio and eventually the Mississippi rivers, the route Evans took, and then sell their goods in the markets of New Orleans. The barges would usually be dismantled and their wood used, if it was still any good, for building materials. The farmer or merchant either went upriver back home by the pole boats or made an overland journey. Pretty arduous. There's a great deal of folklore surrounding the Mississippi River culture in this period. Though it was later in the 19th century, this was the culture that gave rise to some of the great American stories, like Huckleberry Finn. The pen name of the author of that book, Mark Twain, comes from a saying often used in river traffic. It's interesting to see in Evans' book an early glimpse of this Mississippi River culture, especially when no one knows a little about it and what it would become later in the century. As he got into the South, Evans began to encounter slaves and evidence of slavery. This was inevitable. At Natchez, Mississippi, one of the great river ports, traffic in human beings was a very big business. Evans is pretty horrified. He writes, quote, There is no branch of trade in this part of the country more brisk and profitable than that of buying and selling Negroes. 
they are a subject of continual speculation and are daily brought together with other livestock from Kentucky and other places to the Natchez and New Orleans market. How deplorable is the condition of our country. So many bullocks, so many swine, and so many human beings in our market. End quote. Evans was strongly against slavery. As progressive as his various positions were, and he was, after all, a New Englander, it shouldn't be surprising that he hated the institution of slavery and thought it immoral, as many people did, and not just in the North. Evans, however, thought he had a plan that would abolish slavery forever. Like everything else, he thought he was an expert on this, too. Immediately after his description of the Natchez slave market, he gives us his program for emancipation. I suppose he meant well, but his scheme was a bit grotesque. Quote, Notwithstanding the difficulties so frequently suggested, relative to the abolition of slavery within the United States, the evil can easily be removed. Let the people instruct their representatives in Congress to purchase the freedom of every slave in the Union, and to hold the slaves for the discharge of the debt thus incurred, each individual of them to receive an unconditional manumission as soon as they shall, by their labor, offset the amount paid for them. The government would then be the guardian of the blacks for a particular purpose. I have no doubt that slaveholders would generally sell their slaves to the United States for this purpose upon liberal terms. End quote. As for where the money for this would come from, Evans breezes right past this objection. Because the government would own the slaves, the slaveholders would hire them back for the same price. No money would need to change hands. Even if you don't understand the economics of slavery, which was very complicated, this plan is utterly senseless and is just as immoral as the system Evans dams. Putting the government into the business of owning slaves is almost worse than allowing slavery to continue. Needless to say, this plan was never seriously considered by anybody, but it's evidence of how convinced Evans was that he pretty much had a simple answer for everything, even a problem that had bedeviled American society for 200 years already up to that point. Estwick Evans reached New Orleans apparently sometime in May 1818. He spends much of the final pages of his book describing the city, its inhabitants, climate, and customs, and offering yet more digressions, one about Napoleon, another about Andrew Jackson, whom Evans hated and thought a brigand and a murderer. That was a lot of people's feelings about Jackson, especially after some bad business that occurred in Florida, involving two British agents that Jackson had summarily executed an event I may cover in a future episode of this podcast. Actually, though, Evans' journey did not end in New Orleans. He caught a ship from that port and sailed throughout the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean around Florida, he mentions Cape Canaveral, for instance, and then back up the eastern seaboard. However, he skims over this part of his journey, covering it only in a few pages, not in anything like the depth of his pedestrian tour through wintertime New England and the Great Lakes. His travelogue ends abruptly, and with this paragraph, quote, After a passage of thirty days, I arrived at Boston, immediately proceeded to New Hampshire, and there found my friends in the enjoyment of that protection, which results from the wisdom of our laws, when aided by the approbation of a virtuous community. End quote. And end of book. The journey of Estwick Evans is definitely a curiosity of the second decade. It was not particularly momentous or historic, but it was very typical of how Americans saw their country and thought about its frontiers, its wilderness, and its people. In Evans' eccentric journey, we glimpse so many things that later became emblematic of America in the 19th century. The taming of the wilderness and the environment, anxiety and uncertainty about Native Americans, 
faith in commerce, progress in engineering, like the Erie Canal in Pittsburgh, the commercial cities of the Midwest and how they were built, slavery and its terrible legacy, and a polyglot American culture that resisted being painted with a single homogenous identity. The multitude of people who parade through Evans's narrative, from Francophones of New Orleans to Tuscarora Indians and New England Yankees, are an interesting survey of America itself in 1818, growing, populous, diverse, often disagreeable, and always searching for a sense of themselves in this new and untamed country. Estwick Evans was definitely not Grizzly Adams, but his story surely reflects many complexities and questions about what America was in the second decade. Estwick Evans died in 1866. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it will greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Remember, I'm soon going to be hosting some interview podcasts on the New Books Network. Go to newbooksnetwork.com, category science and technology, and find Enviro Studies. That'll get rolling soon. And also check out the bonus episode, kind of a after show, dropping at the same time as this one, the first second decade off topic about sun classic pictures and the phenomenon of fake history. It's called The Sun Also Rises. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include a pedestrian tour of 4,000 miles through the western states and territories during the winter and spring of 1818 by Estwick Evans, printed by Joseph C. Spear, Concord, New Hampshire, 1819. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.